This is Dr. Edward Mazur, chairman of the City Club of Chicago. Our speaker today was the Sheriff of Cook County, Thomas Dart. Tom Dart is a former Assistant State's Attorney, Prosecutor, and State Legislator. First elected to the office of Cook County Sheriff in 2016, he's now serving in his 14th year as the Sheriff of Cook County. He manages one of the largest jails in the nation, provides court services, and police officers in the suburbs of Cook County. In 2017, Tom Dart was named a Public Official of the Year by Governing Magazine. He and his wife, Patricia, are residents of Chicago's South Side, the proud parents of five children. Tom Dart is a graduate of Providence College in Rhode Island, took his law degree at Loyola University, and is a proud graduate of Mount Carmel, the caravan on the southeast side of Chicago. Sheriff Dart addressed his remarks to such issues as COVID-19 and the fact that at one time the jail was considered to be a virus hotspot. But right now he said they are the only jail that has done testing and treated contagious prisoners. There are only 15 prisoners today that are known to have the virus in the Cook County Jail, and they are totally isolated. All the new intakes are tested and not allowed in the general population until they are known to be not positive. He also commented on the Cook County court system and the chief judge and the electronic monitoring program and the fact that he has some prisoners waiting for years before their trial. He even said one of his prisoners, or detainees more properly, has been waiting for 11 years. Under Sheriff Dart, the population of the jail has been reduced from 11,000 to just over 5,000. He's introduced new programs for mentally ill, nonviolent offenders, and installed educational programs that are recognized throughout the United States. Sheriff Tom Dart is our speaker today. Oh, and I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me here um, in these very strange times. I wish I could tell you this is the first time I've ever been in a room by myself talking to a wall, but it's it's not. This is actually quite common for me. Um, and um, the picture you had of me, very nice. Uh, my hair does not look like that anymore because I haven't had a haircut since, I think, January. So there's been lots and lots of changes, but one of the things that hasn't changed is my complete joy, and I mentioned this to you, about coming on and doing a presentation for the City Club. I just, like you, you and I were talking, I miss desperately the 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 person-to-person -person contact, and I'm looking forward to that coming back. But I'm so excited you guys have figured out a way to keep this going while COVID is going on. And uh, we will have a couple little glitches, tech glitches here on our part uh, every once in a while, but we'll work our way through that um, because they say it's confusing times. And in the area that I work in, it's probably one that's received, uh, I'd say, the greatest deal of attention lately because uh, people are rightfully calling for all sorts of changes in our society. Uh, some of these changes uh, are needed immediately. Other ones, you know, have been talked about forever, and whether they'll ever be done, I don't know. But um, there's been an awareness that has been raised that is, is long overdue. And there's been focus all across our society, whether it's dealing with poverty, how we treat different uh, categories of our citizens, how we treat folks across the spectrum, but 
the area that has been particularly interesting to us because it's what we've been working on for so long is the impact on the criminal justice system in the demands for change. And as I said, those demands are long overdue. It's something that we have been talking about, not just talking, but actively doing things about for the last 14 years. And it's something that we have prided ourselves in that when it came time to look at the sheriff's office uh, from the beginning, I looked at things a little bit differently. And at the heart of it was the notion that we were going to be very responsive to our communities and to be agents of change. And, and that's what we thought about doing. And it, the, the good thing is, is that uh, people have been very, very upbeat about the things we've done. Uh, the downside of it is, is that we have more and more people looking for our services and wanting to get our help than ever before. Um, at the same time that my number of people working for me, just as a hard number, I'm 1,200 people less than when I started as sheriff. And so the demands are more and more on what we do with less and less resources to do it. And now we're facing budget constraints because of COVID and the like. So these are going to be difficult times coming up for us. But as I mentioned, we've been dealing with difficult times for 14 years and we took it on straight on is something that we were going to firmly change. Not because people were forcing us to do it, but because that's what we felt. We felt that the criminal justice system was indifferent at best and needed to change. And so we went about doing that. And we have sort of micro parts of the office where it screams out at one such as like human trafficking and prostitution. Those things were always dealt with in one very standard way. You got a call, you went out and arrested somebody. It was insane. It made no sense. We put together a model that is now being mimicked around the country where we go and work with the people who are being prostituted and trafficked deal with the underlying issues to get them away from that for the rest of their lives. But the other part of it, too, which was so obvious to me but had been missed by people all around the country, was that where were these people coming from that were being trafficked in the life? So many of them were coming from our child welfare system, people who had been disconnected from their families for, in some cases, forever, um, but just churned through the system. We find out no one's even looking for these kids. And I mean that legitimately, objectively. No one was looking for them. In 2012, we asked... Who was out looking for kids who ran away from the child welfare system? And there was absolutely no one doing that. So we put together a unit that did just that, not just for the obvious reasons of finding these children and getting them in the right homes, but to keep them out of the system that is preying upon them of trafficking. And to date now, since 2012, we have recovered just under 1,000 children. But for our unit, nobody was looking for them. And those were kids that we were able to keep out of this system. You know, think about it. You know, we talk so often, rightfully so, about the gun violence in our communities. People have been demanding changes in gun laws forever. I was known routinely in Springfield as the king of gun bills that all failed, mind you, all failed. I had a perfect record of losing gun bills in Springfield. Um, but realizing full well that the number of changes we're going to make in a legislative body were going to be minimal. So when we started looking at it in our office, we thought, well, one of the ways we can go at this is a way no one else had thought of, which is to go after people whose FOIA cards, your, your card that allows you to possess a weapon, go after the cards that have been revoked. And we come to find out when you look at that, there's 30,000 people in the state of Illinois whose cards are revoked, most likely have guns in their homes, and no one together that goes to houses and attempts to get the guns. And we've had a great deal of luck in doing that. We've changed some laws as well. But it was another way of looking at this, to think of, okay, is there another way we can go after this as opposed to just sitting there and complaining about legislative change is not happening? 
We're going to introduce some legislation this year, nothing major because of all the different things going on, to try to go after ammunition to make sure that those people who go to buy ammunition have valid FOID cards as well. So there's things like that, these little things, and we have too many of them to list, where we just went at things in a completely different way. But the more global ones were under the idea that our policing itself had to be structured differently, that it had to be structured as a community policing model in the real sense of the word, not just put together some community uh, policing officer who goes from place to place and talks to two or three people, but that the whole model had to be that way. And so two areas that are great examples are one out in Ford Heights. So pretty much after I became sheriff, that department, which had a history of corruption, a history of departments that were horribly underpaid, their offices were making less than, I think it was $8 an hour. So there was heavy turnover, loads of corruption. We came in after the police department left and we took over policing in that town. But from the beginning, it was never gonna be just, let's throw some patrol cars out there and make some arrests. It was gonna be, we need to be very engaged with this town. And so this town that is one of the poorest in the United States and always has been, with about half of the people living on about $10,000 a year, we got engaged with it on a level that no one had thought about before. And when I say engaged, we got engaged with the policing, obviously, but we got engaged with the community. We had community meeting after community meeting to find out what people needed. We realized up front that there was issues all around there. So we started doing things unheard of. We started getting involved with putting lights up. We found street after street didn't have lights. The streets did not have street signs. We got street signs put up. We got lighting that they had never had put up. We then started investing in finding, getting rid of demolished uh, buildings that had been abandoned for decades. But to do that, we had to get involved with their local government to change their ordinances so they can actually do these things. Then we found that they're paying the highest water rates in the state of Illinois. We got to the Rural Water Board. The Illinois Rural Water Association came in for free and studied it. Come to find out over half of their water goes right into the ground because of leaks. We were able to start putting plans together to try to fix their infrastructure there. Then it was things where it was like we had to do things with the kids. And we had horrible truancy issues, but there was nothing being done in the schools. So we went to the schools and helped them put together a truancy plan where it wasn't out arresting people, but it was going to homes and helping people get to school. It literally meant we picked kids up and drove them to the school. Beyond that, though, we got engaged with the kids, finding out that there was people in the community, amazing people, who were piling kids for years into their cars to drive them to baseball games because there was no baseball fields anywhere near them, and would do that, drive three or four towns over. We decided we were going to help them build a field. We were going to do it ourselves. We found out we couldn't. It was obvious. And one of my employees made a connection with someone with Major League Baseball and the Cubs of all people, a lifelong White Sox fan. This was really tricky for me. Um, but they came together, gave about $250,000, and McHugh Construction came in, donated all of this stuff, and collectively together put together this beautiful baseball field. We're now Ford Heights. This town with all these different issues has one of the base, best baseball fields in the area. And we, our, our office does the maintenance of the field and takes care of all of it. We help with the teams. We get our, our officers donate equipment to the kids as well. But it was one of those things where it was like, okay, We've got to try to hit this at every level. And we put together job fairs. And these are all things we continue to do as of this day. Job fairs, we have anti-bullying bullying campaigns we do within the schools. We have summer camps that we run where we take the kids to camps at um, parts of the county they've never been to, field trips into downtown Chicago. 
we do a, a, a shop with the sheriff where we take them out at Christmas time and they get to buy presents. Then we have things with domestic violence specialists. They come in and talk to folks. We have a mobile van, this amazing group of people have this mobile van that comes around to different places. They are going to uh, give asthma exams and back to school exams as well. And they drive out to the community to do this, a community that is, has all sorts of issues with getting, gaining access to health care. In addition to that, we got down into the real sort of weeds of it. We started going out there and helping senior citizens that did not have any other way to shovel snow, to cut grass, you name it. And we did it out there, and we were happy to do that. The thing, once again, though, is word spread. And so other towns as well have asked us. And so the demand for our officers and our office has been skyrocketing. skyrocketing. It, we're in the town of Robbins on a regular basis. We do all their detective work. The town of Dalton, we do shifts for them all the time. Where they don't have officers to do one of their shifts, we do it. We have a substation in their town. We are in the town of Harvey constantly now. We're in Riverdale. We're in Phoenix. We're in Dixmore all the time. And we continue to do that. And mind you, all these things being done with less personnel than I ever had before. So we do those things. They're great. They're examples that I believe other people can follow in engaging communities in a different way where you aren't just there to arrest people, but you're working with the community, solving crimes, and building trust. And we took that same model into the city of Chicago about six years ago. We started out in the south side of the city of Chicago, and then we picked uh, areas, districts of the city of Chicago, where the shootings were up the highest and the homicides were up the highest. We're at the south side for about a year or so, and then we moved out to the west side, the Austin area, because it was particularly violent at that point in time about two and a half years ago. We went out there, and on average, we have about 100 police officers that are out there on a given day. We have a substation out there. We work alone as a unit, but we obviously work very much hand in glove with the city of Chicago. But what we did is we put together a community policing model out there, very similar to Fort Heights, where we went out there. And, yes, we, we make arrests. Yes, we, we do that. We're engaged with the community in all sorts of functions. We have barbecues that we work through with the block clubs where we organize with them. We have barbecues on the weekends. We have baseball tournaments that we put together. We have junior sheriff's programs. We have a 5K that we're engaged with as well. We do community cleanup out there. We have a senior academy. We've given out COVID uh, kit giveaways out in the community as well. We do mentorship programs. When we got a call from the library that they were having problems with young kids there, we didn't go out there and arrest anybody. We went and met with the kids and found out they really were just, they were bored. And so we set up board game tournaments in the school, uh, in the library that we do on a regular basis now. Those things collectively have led to where we don't take all credit for this. It's not true. We don't, but with the city of Chicago working their tail off with us out there, we have seen a 34% decrease in shootings out there, a 35% decrease in homicides. We've recovered over 124 guns. We've made 31,000 contacts with residents and business owners in the community. We've attended 80 different community meetings, many of which we started. Uh, we have 17 senior citizen safety uh, camps that we put together. And we've been involved with over 1,100 safe passage routes. What I mean by that is, we walk along with the kids to school every day. And a large portion of my officers, on their own initiative, they want to do this. I was ecstatic. They did. They do it on bike patrols. And so we don't have the issues that Chicago does where they're getting inundated with 911 calls they have to respond to. They get the 911 calls. 
so we can do more proactive things when we're out there. And so we're talking with the community. We're on bikes where people stop us all the time and talk to us about different things. And so there's a real incredible engagement that we do out there that is just, it's different and it's showing really positive results. And we've, t- we've taken it into the local schools where we do programs within the schools that are connected with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Boy Scouts of America. We work in the Catalyst Circle Rock Charter School. We have a program going on there. We work with the good folks at Goodman who put together a narrative series for the kids. And it just it goes on and on. And as I said, there are ways to do this. And I think we have gotten a great, great template to do this. We have results that show that as well. But it was clear when we were doing this, that it wasn't just going to be we work on the policing. We did major changes in evictions as well from day one because we figured that's another interaction with the community and law enforcement. And let's make this positive. Let's not make it this really onerous sort of medieval to where we're at the door with a battering ram and out you go. It's like, no, we put together social workers. They go out to the houses, they talk with the people, they see what the issues are. And as a result of that, 90% of the houses we go to, they're not thrown to the street. We connect them with other places to go, whether it's new housing, it's with family members that they had issues with before. But in the course of a year, we have over a thousand different families that we work with that otherwise would just be thrown to the street. But we've done this in a different way and the results are phenomenal. And once again, this is how law enforcement can do things completely differently. And that's what we did. And the, the obvious one, the obvious one that you know screams out is, well, clearly also, how can you not talk about the jail? Well, yeah, absolutely. I've been screaming about this for only about 14 years that we need to think and operate differently. And so we put a model together where it's rehabilitating people, restoring people, making them a, a smooth reentry path back into their communities. And so whether it was advancing bail reform early on saying we cannot keep locking up people because they're poor or they're mentally ill. And that's what we were doing. 44 of the 50 states, the largest mental health providers, and, you know, our local brain surgeons decided that, you know, with the mental health crisis being what it is, let's start eliminating mental health clinics. So we decided, you know, that that that's something we don't need apparently. So they shut down six of their 12 mental health clinics, three mental health hospitals closed. So what we did is we put together a different framework. We said, if we're going to be forced to be a mental health clinic, let's be a great mental health clinic and hospital. And put together a mental health treatment center. The old boot camp, we completely converted it into a mental health treatment center where we have had, I think it's just under a thousand people go through there. When they go there, it's in a somewhat bucolic setting, more therapeutic for people who inherently the issue is their mental illness. They have cognitive behavioral treatment. We have photography classes, gardening classes, drum circles, you name it job fairs, re-entry programs, all these things with in mind of treating what the problem is and not trying to criminalize mental illness. But we went beyond that saying, okay, well, we got all the violence in the street. We put together a program called SAVE. What that does is it targets the 18 to 23-year-olds who are coming in from the most violent zip codes. We house them together. In five days a week, they get a violence reduction training, cognitive programming, anger management, parenting classes, job programming, you name it. And the results have been startling. They've been absolutely startling as far as when you look at the decrease in the violence, as far as those individuals who normally would be people you'd expect to be individuals who would have either be shot or or shoot somebody. 
this is not happening and we're seeing great progress there. We've had an amazing contribution from the universities in the Chicago area, the city colleges, DePaul University, Dominican, Northeastern, North Park, Northwestern, University of Illinois, Chicago, McCormick Theological. They came in and put together a higher education collaborative where they do programs that are higher education programs in the jail, but then it's a transition in the community. And they've done just amazing work with the people they brought in already. And then we have the programs that are more drilled at, um, at skills, but not just the skills itself for the sake of the skill, but it also changes people's way of thinking. So we have a, play, a, a, a program called Recipe for Change run by this amazing guy, Bruno Abadi, who does it for free, where, yes, you teach the highest level of cooking and creating, but there's also this mental change that people go through. And they get jobs like you wouldn't believe when they leave the place. It's just phenomenal. And we've got a food truck we're about to start as well with it, where it's going to be run by detainees as well. All those things have that thread with changing behavior and the way of thinking. Same thing with our chess program. We've been running that for years. We've had about 2,000 people through the chess program where we changed their way of thinking, teach them patience, think of repercussions for different moves you make. All these different things are drilled into their heads through that program. And then we run a program for their children. We teach their children. My son ran it for years until he went off to college on me. But we teach children how to play chess. And then they would play via online with their fathers in the jail. And there was this connection that the kids and their fathers built that they'd never had before. And so those, you know, we had inter first ever international tournament where we played Russia, Armenia, Belarus, Brazil, Italy, and England. We came in fifth place. Russia won, but there was never a doubt in my mind that Putin was going to declare victory on this one. So we did well, though. We did well. But then other big things, too, that I just want to touch on quick because I know I'm running out of time. Voting in a jail, a time where people rightfully are concerned all around our country about voter suppression. We don't just have your traditional absentee voting in the jail program. We have polling stations in the jail. First time ever anywhere in the country, anywhere, I don't know, maybe somewhere in the world they're doing it, but nowhere else in the country where detainees vote in the jail. And the thing that I found fascinating about it is we always had done absentee voting in the jail and we'd get engagement and we'd try to do that. I told them I don't just want voting, I want educated voters. So they did civics programs to where these men and women knew more about government than many voters do. And the kicker was, is our turnout in the jail was just under 40%. A lot of people would say, that is a home run. It's better than they're doing outside of the jail. So that was good. The final thing in the jail I want to mention, though, is something that also when it trying to change people and restore people, we eliminated solitary confinement about four years ago. That sounds like, you know, well, of course, that sounds like a barbaric thing to do anyways. Solitary confinement is used in every single jail and prison in the country other than us. The reason behind it is because that's how it's always been done. Every single study shows it's obviously debilitating. It shows no change in behavior, all the rest of the stuff. But it's just always done everywhere. It's the fail-safe. We eliminated it because we knew what it could do to people. And in doing that, not only the obvious changes occurred, but we saw dramatic drops in inmate-on-inmate -inmate fights, dramatic drops on assaults on staff, all that being done with the notion that this is not how thoughtful people act. And so we went through the things within the jail. We were changing, but we figured, okay, on the outside, we had to work on things as well. So we have programs where we teach people how to deconstruct buildings. So we've gone into communities all around Cook County and have torn down 
buildings have been abandoned for decades, over 300 of them, all for free for the community, while our participants learn this skill that's so valuable that 90% of them get jobs when they leave as a result of it. We have these wild entrepreneur programs where we teach these, uh, these young men uh, how to become an entrepreneur. And I have three of them. I'm going to mention their names quick. And if any of you folks can help them, it's, off, it's awesome. Sean Allen, his program is called uh, Tag Marketing Firm. Kyle Yurkovich is Wise Guy De uh, Detailing. It's a mobile detailing business with a focus on partnering with car dealerships uh, to do on-the-go detailing. And Novi McDonald, uh, his business is M5, uh, M3 Landscaping. He started a landscaping business and currently is raising money through crowdfunding campaigns to purchase new equipment to expand his clientele. Each of these three and numerous other folks go into our entrepreneur program where we teach them how to be businessmen. And these are just three that have it up and going now. We have this wild program run by this amazing person named Deborah Gittler. With, he, she teaches these individuals how to write memoirs called Contextos. Please donate. Go to her site. It's amazing what she does and the, the, the transformation that occurs as a result of that is incredible. We run you know, countless substance abuse programs within the jail, um, the traditional ones, but they're all ones that have a unique hook to it to try to get at the underlying issues. And then I started up a program called SOAR, which deals with specifically opioids. And so we identify people with opioid issues. We give them treatment when they're with us, obviously, but then we case manage them out in the community as well. And they've had ridiculous results as that as well. The final two things real quick I wanted to mention before I took it, open up for questions was with the mental health clinics closing, you know, yes, I could have done what traditionally is done, yell and scream and hold my breath. Uh, figured, you know, I'm too old for that now. Uh, what I did is I reopened one of the closed clinics. And so uh, four or five years ago, we entered in an agreement with the city of Chicago for a dollar a year. They lease it to us. And we now run a full-blown mental health clinic in the community. It's for individuals who have left the jail, but it's also for their families. People have never been involved with the criminal justice system. It's been remarkable. It was an area where there was a huge gap in service for people, but we saw it and we went into it and we took it up. Then the final thing I was going to reference was our newest edition about a year ago called the Treatment Response Team, also going after opioids. That's why I took law enforcement officers who were highly trained and civilians who this was their, their background, and we go out to the streets to work in the areas where there's horrible opioid issues. We work with the businesses in the community to give them training in naloxone. All of my officers carry that uh, and have brought numerous people back to life as a result of it. But we also then respond to homes after someone has had an overdose. We reach out to their family that day and we engage them. And we've had amazing uh, response from people who then become engaged with us, get their loved one in treatment they, they've never done before. And as a result of that, countless lives we've saved. And so those are just not just program after program, but the common thread is rethinking law enforcement in our society and what it is that we're supposed to be doing. And we're not just supposed to be out arresting people, but rethinking every aspect of it. And we have done that with each and every part of this office and we'll continue to do it. And that's why when people right now are talking about the wild spectrum of some you know, people talking about abolishing law enforcement, other people rethinking it. I'm always telling people we're always rethinking it and we're always looking at new ways to go after it. And so for us, yes, these are really challenging times on many levels, but it's something that we have been dealing with for 14 years and trying to reinvent things. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up just briefly uh, about COVID. We had a lot of COVID issues in the jail early on. 
underlying it though was the fact that we went with science day one i told our folks we're going with science we're not going to go with obfuscation and we're not going to go with let's try to cover this thing up and say we have a couple of flu outbreaks here no 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 we tested as a result of it the testing show we had a lot of positives out there that was long before people even realized about what asymptomatic was but as i stand here right now out of just under 5,000 people in the jail we have 15 positive cases in the entire jail and of those 15 10 of them came into the jail positive because we test everyone at intake now and so as a result of it we didn't bend the code uh, the curve we blew up the curve we right now have a handful of cases they're in isolation they come in off the street. We're, we're doing contact tracing back onto the street to see where they came from, to see if there's any patterns there as well. But through a lot of hard work and a lot of people's part, we took on this, this, this horrible, horrible virus and have it under control now. With the big caveat is that if we don't get court cases moving, which is always a problem in Cook County. Right now I have one person who's been waiting 11 years for their trial. I have two, three people who have been waiting nine to ten years for the trial and so on if we don't get cases moving if the, the gun violence continues in the streets and brings more people into the jail i will not be able to have the space to keep distancing people appropriately so it's in a very good place right now but these other things could complicate it and the prison system shutting the doors for us like three or four months ago whatever it was didn't help either because right now i have just under 500 people who are supposed to be down in the Department of Corrections, but they shut their doors on us. So at one time, the jail was considered to be a real hot spot. But just recently, a week or two ago, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, issued a report crediting you and your staff with successfully reducing the number of positive cases at the Southwest Side facility. So congratulations for following the science. Another issue that we'd like you to comment on is the issue of electronic monitoring um, and your feelings about the number of people that are being put on electronic monitors, removed from the confines of the jail. And some people feel that this has gone too far, others not far enough. Your thoughts on this issue, Sheriff? Yeah, thank you. So. We all have, right now we operate, I believe, one of the largest home monitoring programs in the country. Um, the Sheriff's Office has always had a home monitoring program, but it was always developed for drug offenders and property crimes, traffic cases. About two or three years ago now, uh, with bail reform, there was a switch. The, some of the problem starts with the fact there was never any conversation with our office. There was never one conversation saying, Tom, can you take more people. Tom, can you take more violent people? Tom, do you need more personnel for that? There was none of the above. So all of a sudden we saw this wave of people charged with gun offenses, people charged with homicide put on EM, home monitoring. Um, I've said from the beginning that that is not the appropriate use of home monitoring, that putting gun offenders out there, which right now is our largest group by uh, charge on home monitoring. That's not what our home monitoring was, was set up for. What we did, and we got very, very lucky, we had Steve Levitt, who was one of the authors of Freakonomics, he wanted to help us with this. And so right now, what we do, all gun offenders who are out there, there's a little over, um, I think there's uh, 500 and some, uh, they have GPS monitors on their legs. 
what that we do is that Steve Levitt's people take and overlay that uh, over that crime that occurs throughout the city of Chicago, and then they see if there's connections and patterns. And by doing that, there's a higher confidence level that the gun offenders on the home monitoring program are not engaged with that because we monitor people 24 hours a day. We have no information as of right now that any of the shootings in the city of Chicago in the past two or three months for sure, but even going back further, we're not uh, involving any of the people on home monitoring, but underlying it is there needs to be a reevaluation of the people who qualify for that because I don't believe gun offenders are the people that should be on there. Very good. Uh, Judith Graff, who's a non-member of the City Club, but we invite her to join, wants to know, is it possible to get a list of the judges who offer low bail and electronic monitoring to repeat violent offenders? Uh, you know, I don't know what if that system allows that or not. What I mean by that is, is that it's not a data system that we carry um, in our office. So I don't know if the clerk's office keeps track of that. I know there's certain judges that do bond courts, certain judges are in trial courts. As far as which judge gave out what type of bond to whoever, I have to imagine that that is available. I just wouldn't know what database people would require um, to get that. Very good. And this is from John Donovan, City Club member. He says that um, your coverage of the COVID, electronic monitoring, and these other programs should be models for other parts of the country. He'd like to know how your models might be applied to our state correctional system. Have you been in contact with the people who run our state system? And are they willing to take on some of these programs that you've talked about? Um, a lot of other jurisdictions are taking this on now. When the CDC came down with their report, they literally said, we're the model now for the country for all jails and prisons. and. So there's more people now interested in that. And uh, the problem has been a lot of them were scared away, to be honest with you, Ed, because I got uh, the media was less than helpful. Um, the first story that talked about us being this hotspot. Yeah, we did have an outbreak. But what the media you know, purposely failed to mention was we were the only one testing anybody at the time. So, of course, we're the hotspot. Everybody else was zeros. What should have been the story is, is that even when you test, which science says you should, you're going to have this but it's the only way to address it, and you can't put your head in the stand. sand. As we sit here right now, the, the state of Illinois, the Department of Corrections, has only tested like 2% of their people. I've done over seven, about just under 7,000 tests of my population now, 4,800 people. So the reality is a lot of scare, uh, sheriffs and um, wardens got scared because they saw what the media did to me and how they misrepresented things. And... You know, what I'm telling people is just put that aside. If the media is going to hit you, they're going to hit you. But you got to stick with the science. And it's absolutely something that you could duplicate because it's very strategic what we did. We did it early on. We did it long before anybody else and long before any lawsuits. We did it with testing. We did it with isolation. I opened up buildings that were closed for, you know, five, ten years. Um, we did it with a lot of amazing staff and our staff and the hospital people. But it can be done and should be done. Thank you. We have a, a several more questions here, Sheriff. Um, this is from Kayla Cutshaw, and she'd like to know about the eviction policies and the soon-to-expire unless Congress asks, acts on providing 
relief for people who are unemployed. What effect do you think this will have on your operation in the Cook County Sheriff's Office? So we, we've been monitoring this very closely and a couple things. Uh, we're you know, of the opinion that it seems as if there's going to be another extension of some level, but we're not banking on it. We're going to continue to go with our social work model, which is we go out to the houses, we talk to people. But the big thing we're going to add, Ed, is we're going to add a public health component to it, too. Because if you think about it, how reckless would it be on my part is if I go into a house and there's COVID positive people in there and I not only throw them out, I take them over to a shelter um, so they can infect the shelter. So we put in, in addition to our social work model where we work with people and their families to find other housing, to find places for their belonging and stuff like that, we put a, a public health component on it as well. We really, much like with the, the jail, uh, there was no playbook. We invented it. We're sort of doing that again here because we're getting very little guidance. So we're going to continue to monitor what's going on out there. But we, we are you know anxious how this is going to play out. We think we have a good idea of some things we can do, but it's, it's going to be very tricky. Very good. Uh, this is from John Cupper with Cupper Communications, LLC. Uh, your reaction to the defund the police movement? Yeah, and it's John Cooper, uh, and the uh, I know it's spelled different. Um, uh, I understand where people are coming from, I believe, by and large there. There's a lot of outrage with things they've seen uh, by law enforcement over the years, and particularly recently there's been George Floyd and other cases that have just shocked people as well as should. Uh, so people are looking for change. The defunding part of it, I, I can't for the life of me think of how that makes any sense. Now, reinventing, uh, changing the way we operate, that makes a lot of sense. But it's, it's how you go about doing this. important. That's why I, when I was talking about all the different things we did, we've been doing this for 14 years now where we thought of, like, how can we do this? We're much more a community-engaged unit, not just out arresting people. But the, the, the defund folks, they're misplaced because I always say, okay, well, then what's your solution? What are you going to do once you defund the police? Well, then they, there's all these different wild variations. And there's people talking about, well, social workers can get engaged. Well, we do have social workers engaged. We have social workers that work with us on uh, opioid issues, on domestic violence issues, you name it. But the notion that somehow you can have a, a sort of 911 call that gets somehow deviated over to a social worker they go to a house where there's a domestic violence case, that will not work out well. Uh, that will not work out. People need to do, once again, similar to what we do. All of my officers for years have crisis intervention training and mental health training. So when they go to homes, they're trained in how to de-escalate cases, how to identify when the case is not a criminal matter. It's a mental health matter. We get those all the time. And we get cases, John, it, 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 honest to God, it is absolutely startling how many times we'll get cases where an individual will say, as opposed to going to the hospital in the ambulance, can your officer just take me in a squad car? Um, so there's a different mindset of what our officers do and how they operate there. But there, there needs to be changes, absolutely needs to be changes. But the defunding part of it does not make sense as far as it doesn't begin to address any of these issues at all. It's just, frankly... It's a, it's a way someone who just wants to come up with a quick uh, soundbite to say to do with it. And these are complicated issues. And thoughtful people, that's not how you operate. 
Thank you very much, Cheryl. Um, this is from Gerardo Ramirez. How did your office assist in the recent civil unrest in the city and suburbs? We were very engaged in different parts of trying to help because of the unrest. Um, and we had a presence in different areas. So myself and our officers were in the town of Cicero on two different nights in particular. And that was a very, very tense situation out there because there was all sorts of different uh, things going on at once. And so we were out there for two nights in a row. Uh, thankfully, no one on either side of anything was injured. There was uh, a way where it was de-escalated uh, and calmed down. But we did. Uh, we spent a lot of time in the south suburbs, and then we spent a lot of time on the southeast side of the city of Chicago as well, and in the southwest side of the city of Chicago, in the um, uh, like 115th and Marshfield, there was a, a mall there, and then we were over at uh, a Walmart in the Ninth Ward as well that we spent a great deal of time with because a lot of the Chicago officers were spread very thin. So we were filling in in places on the uh, east side and the south side as well. Um, and it was, I mean, I was out there myself. You know, I, I never make any pretense that, you know, I'm out there to make all the arrests, but I was out there with my officers uh, there. And then we spent a great deal of time at, on the, um, out in the south suburbs. And it was, uh, everything was very, very unfortunate. Don't get me wrong, but by the time we were alerted, particularly to problems in uh, Harvey and Dalton, uh, so much was already looted uh, that if they had called us maybe a day earlier, but they were so overwhelmed. When we went out to Harvey, for example, uh, the, these strip malls had just been completely ransacked and there was nothing left. And so many of the shop owners were of the opinion they didn't know what to do. What we ended up doing, though, is I converted one of my units overnight and we call it the rebuild unit. So what we've been doing now for weeks is our officers and some civilians, we go into a lot of the looted businesses and we help clean up and we help get them back in a position where they can reopen the store now. So we've been just very active involved in trying to reopen stores now and helping them. But it was it was very, very um, difficult for everybody involved. Very good. We have several questions here from Tony Natale and Michael Rabbit and several other people, they're a little unclear about the functions of the your office and the Chicago Police Department and how the two of you can work together and at times appear to be working not together. Would you comment on that, please? You know, Ed, it's a very confusing topic, but in, in a very general sense, uh, the sheriff's office has jurisdiction of everything in the county of Cook. But if a town or city, whether it's Chicago or whether it's, uh, you know, Maywood, if they have their own police department, which most do, they have the primary jurisdiction and they do the primary work. The 911 calls all go to them. What we do is we take unincorporated areas and that which there isn't much of. But then in towns that don't have policing or don't have the policing that they wish, we become more uh, an element of um, uh, more than an assist. As I say, in some towns, we do all of their patrolling for them because they don't have anything. How it works in the city of Chicago, though, is it's somewhat of a partnership where uh, for a while I was just in there doing it uh, on our own. And that was effective. Don't get me wrong. But. 
in the course of the last uh, two or three years, it's been much more effective because we are very coordinated with the city. When I say coordinated, my folks are in the city. We have jurisdiction in there. We are not responding to 911 calls in the city. We will go if CPD, we have their radio frequencies. If they need backup, things like that, we go. But we're patrolling just like a regular patrol in, uh, in Austin right now. We see crime. We pull people over. We make the arrest. If there's someone that has mental health issues, we pull up. We get them in the car. We get them to the hospital. Uh, if we uh, see criminal activity, we will investigate and make arrests, whatever it is. But it is a, a weird mix in the sense that it's separate, but we're coordinated in the sense that we all share information. We all know what the other one's doing. Uh, we all share radio frequencies when we need to do that as well. Um, but I have my own separate sort of philosophy and way we're operating uh, than theirs. And, but it's been nothing but a incredibly pleasant working relationship between all of us. And as I said, we share data regularly. Um, but it's, it's frankly, you know, if you, if you think about it, and it's taking a police district and adding a hundred more police officers, but it's just we aren't weighed down with the nine one one calls, so we're able to do more proactive things and be more engaged and things like that. Very good, uh, Sheriff Dart. This question comes from Levi Moore with the Hectone Institute of Medicine. Correctional officers work under incredible levels of stress at time bordering on combat PTSD levels. Just yesterday, we saw that a very high-ranking Chicago police officer committed suicide. What wellness measures and help is available to correctional officers, the police, and court service personnel? Well, you know, we have like what I would consider, and I don't mean to be dismissive, but we have the standard... Uh, EAP, uh, Employee Assistance Program. So we have that, but years ago we went well beyond that. So we have an early intervention system that we uh, we use that as a way to try to get out in front of issues and to approach individuals that look as if they're having particular issues and do it in a non-confrontational way. It's not in any way meant to uh, take them off the street and they have to worry about their job, none of that. Um, and then we have this really robust peer support group. And they're, it's a unit that's incredibly engaged. They have specific events that the entire purpose is morale building, um, but also addressing these exact issues, these PTSD issues, all the rest of it. And it's done in an environment where there's this complete ability for people to talk and yet know that it's not going to negatively impact your job or anything else um, and to open up. And so uh, the question's right on topic as far as obviously what happened yesterday, but that's such a horrible issue all around the country. And uh, we're constantly trying to think of new ways to intervene there. We think these are really good approaches now, but if either that gentleman or someone else has an additional way that we can layer something on, we'd be open to it. But we have spent a lot of time and energy on that very issue. Thank you. Our final question comes from Jim Sheehan with Sinach LLC. He asks about Glenwood Academy, and he's very thankful for the support that your office has given to the Glenwood Academy. He'd like to know what your impression is of the work that the Academy is doing for underprivileged children. Oh, you know, it's an amazing program. I was uh, astounded to, that I had never heard of it before up until like three or four years ago. 
and it's been around for a hundred years. It's been it was founded by Robert uh, Lincoln, uh, Ab- uh, Abraham Lincoln's son. Um, so it, it goes back that far. Uh, and when I went out there, not, not just visit, it's, it's an idyllic campus. It's gorgeous. But when you look and see what the people there do with these children, it is absolutely phenomenal. It's a program, as I said, people need to get engaged with. They need to find out about it and figure out how they can support this program because it takes children from areas that have particular um, uh, issues, okay, and distressed areas. And uh, these kids live on campus five days a week. Uh, they live in dorms, they get education of the highest level, and on the weekends they go home with their families. Um, and I went out there and when I visited, I was blown away with just the, the caliber of education was amazing. The facilities were amazing, but just the way the kids were acting, Ed, was unreal. I mean, there was this, uh, you couldn't hide it. They absolutely loved being there. They loved everything about it, the camaraderie. And so one of the many, many different things that need to be done when we're talking about how do we address, you know, violence and, you know, some of these other issues in our communities, well, to give children access to something like this is, is just amazing. I mean, these kids, they graduate from that place, they're all going to be future leaders. It's abundantly clear. And we just need more of that. Well, we thank you. And uh, thank organizations like that that do that very hard, difficult, but necessary work. Um, Sheriff Dart, we appreciate your being with us today for your time and your wonderful insights and opinions. We present you with a one-year membership to the City Club of Chicago. We thank you. We offer you our blessings for the coming year and, and years to come. And once again, I'd like to remind our viewers that... You can donate to the City Club of Chicago. We're a 501c3 organization. And during these most unusual times, we're grateful for your support. Thank you, and we look forward to being with you again. Have a great day.